You're listening to The Way Home with Daniel Darling, a proud member of the Venom Audio Network. This episode of The Way Home Podcast is brought to you by the new CSB Men of Character Bible. I just want to say a quick word about the CSB translation. I've come to really enjoy it and uh, use it in my preaching and my personal devotional time. I love both its accuracy, but also the readability, uh, particularly as you go through the Old Testament. Well, this new Men of Character Bible, uh, CSB Men of Character Bible, is uh, edited by renowned Bible teacher, Dr. Gene Getz. And uh, he guides men through scripture by exploring the lives of men of character uh, found throughout the Bible. If you have a man in your life that you'd like to get a new study Bible, maybe a good gift ahead of a Father's Day, this would be a great gift. It is full of character profiles of some of the most worthy examples of godly character in scripture, of biblical figures who brought leadership, wisdom, and inspiration uh, to God's people. Each of these men faced trials, frustrations, and even failure, and yet were empowered by God to persevere and achieve great things for His glory. Uh, this would be a great gift for the man in your life, the CSB Men of Character Bible. If you go to lifeway.com during the month of May, you can get it for 40% off, which is a great discount. So go to lifeway.com and get the Men of Character Bible at 40% off. We want to thank the good friends at the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, for sponsoring this episode of The Way Home. Well, hello and welcome to The Way Home Podcast. I am so glad that you joined me today. I want to ask you a question uh, do you have a friend or a family member or perhaps a, someone in your immediate circle, a, a, a teenager or a child or a parent or somebody who has questions about the Christian faith, who's honestly seeking and wrestling? Man, if you do, today is the podcast you need to pull up a chair and listen to. My friend Rebecca McLaughlin is joining me. Rebecca's been on the podcast before, but she is a real gift to the church. Uh, She's the author of several books, books that I encourage you to put in your library to pass out to people who uh, you know who um, are are searching and hurting. Her first book was called Confronting Christianity. And in this book, she takes like 10 of the hardest questions people say about Christianity. Why is there evil in the world? Haven't Christians caused all this pain, all this thing? And she really tackles them them head on. She's honest and open about these things, but man, it's such a great book. Uh, Even if you're not searching or or questioning, it's a book that'll strengthen your faith. Well, she's back with a couple of more books, uh, and you'll be glad to know she's got a version of Confronting Christianity for teens, and it's called uh, 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask, and she writes this specifically for some of the pressures and questions that teens are facing. Uh, I'm the father of one teen and one who's going to be a teen pretty soon, and they have a lot of questions. They they are in the church. We've raised them. We've trained them, but they, they still are wrestling like every person in that generation is. This is really good stuff. And then she's also got a little book published by the Gospel Coalition called The Secular Creed, which I think presses in on some of the sort of secular religion we're sort of seeing in the culture, uh, where people are being more open about what they say they believe. If you ever seen someone with a yard sign that said, you know, in this house we believe in science and we believe in equality and we believe in all these things. 
She really kind of speaks to that and answers that with what a Christian response should be. So you will love this conversation with Rebecca. She is from the UK. She's really sharp and is someone I highly recommend. Before we talk to Rebecca McLaughlin, though, I just want to tell you about a special offer. As most of you know, I am Senior Vice President of the National Religious Broadcasters, which is the largest association of Christian communicators in the country. Uh, We are an association of TV and radio broadcasters, but also folks who are doing digital ministry, film, and church media. And we have our big convention, June 21st through the 24th. Uh, We are excited about this. This is in Texas at the Gaylord Texan. They're in the Dallas area. And we have some great guests really to equip us on all facets of Christian media. Uh, Some of the the people you've heard on this podcast are going to be there. Paula Ferris, who used to be an anchor at ABC News. Mark Job, who's the president of Moody Bible Institute, Tony Evans, who is a wonderful preacher, and you've heard him preach on radio and television, heard him speak, read his books, most likely. Uh, Dallas Jenkins, who's the executive director of The Chosen, if you've watched that uh, miniseries, will be there, and many, many others. If you'd like to get equipped in Christian media, if you'd like to get connected, if you'd like to get a foot in the door and make connections and network, if you're someone who does church media and you're, you you at your church have had to pivot really quickly last year to doing digital ministry and you want to learn how to continue that and do it in a sharp and excellent way, I really highly recommend you come. We have a lot of workshops there for you as well. If you are a listener to The Way Home Podcast, you can go to nrbconvention.org and register and get a special discount. You want to pay attention to this. You go to nrbconvention.org and you put in the coupon code WAYHOME21. That's WAYHOME21. 21 is the coupon code, and you get $50 off your registration. So I'd love to see you in June. Please join us at the NRB convention in Dallas. Okay, let's join our conversation now with my good friend, Rebecca McLaughlin. Well, I'm glad to have my my friend Rebecca McLaughlin here on uh, the Way Home Podcast. Rebecca, I think this is the second time I've had you on, I believe. That's right. Yeah, we talked about Confronting Christianity a couple of years ago, I think. Yes, which is an amazing book, and I recommend it probably a couple times a week. And I'm not, oh, wow. I'm, not, I'm, not I'm not like just saying that because you're on the, the podcast. I just really feel like it's such a great book for seekers, for people who have questions about Christianity, and even just Christians who are solid in their faith, but really, you know, could use some confidence. And I I just love your whole approach to that. Uh, So thank you for writing that book. Oh, Um, I'm glad. And I'm glad to have you back on because you've got a teen version of that book, which is so great. Uh, I have a young, I have a, I have a teenager, I have a 16 year old and I have a son who's almost uh, 13 along with two other children who are not teenagers, but I'm so glad that you wrote that book. Well, you're welcome. I, I have uh, three kids who are nearly 11, nearly nine and nearly three. Mm-hmm. And my eight and 10 year olds are already asking many of the questions addressed in the book. They're already encountering situations at school where they kind of need to be equipped mm-hmm. on a lot of these Issues. So I'm I'm increasingly a believer in having hard and complex conversations with our kids early, and so that rather than them coming home from 
one day and saying, mum and dad, here's what I heard. How should I think about this? That actually they, we mm-hmm. already had those conversations with them multiple times when they are going into those more complex situations. Yeah. You know, when you think about apologetics, which is a big term, obviously, you know, I love the way that you approach it. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to approach apologetics and there's some really good folks who are doing it in different ways, right? And different approaches and different camps or people that feel the best approach. But I love the way that you do it in the sense that, and I think it models a little bit of what I've seen from, what I've read from Tim Keller, where you're just directly leaning into the questions people have, uh, that you know that they have about Christianity, uh, that they're asking and just really facing them head on. Has, has apologetics always been something that you've been interested in? Has it been part of your own journey and trying to really ask the questions that uh, about Christianity that you've had yourself? Uh, talk about your, you know, this calling that you have and, and why you feel so strongly about it. Since I was about nine, I have been a very uh, sort of eager bean <laughs> follower of Jesus. Yeah. And I, I was then and was for, for many, many years in uh, academic environments where the vast majority of my friends were, were not Christians. Uh, and they were very smart people who had very good reasons for not actually even considering Christianity. And so for me, apologetics has been um, less the experience that I know some people have of sort of growing up in a Christian home where they most of their their peers have been um, Christians and then at some point maybe in their teenage years they've suddenly been challenged by all these different ideas from the sort of big wide world out there I've almost had the the opposite experience of always knowing that I was the outlier as a Christian and that my friends had questions or concerns or, or reasons that they weren't even actually bothering to consider whether Jesus rose from the dead or some of the kind of classic apologetics questions. Um, and so so what I have tried to do, you know, as long as I can remember just in, in private conversations with, with friends and then try to do it in my books, is instead of starting by saying, this is why I think you're wrong, to actually start by saying, hey, this is why I think you're right. <laughs> if Christianity is indeed all the things that, that you think that it is, you know, if you think it is the, the, the source of racism and misogyny mm. and mm. anti-intellectualism and um, of all the, the things that I think many of our friends honestly think Christianity is today, and they have some, some data pointing them in that direction, I think there's a good reasons to, to not be a Christian. Um, but I think with, with each of those reasons, if we look more closely at, at the information um, we can find, we, we find that rather than them being roadblocks to faith in Jesus, they actually become signposts. And rather than being things that um, discredit and disprove the Christian faith, they actually become things that make us or make make me want to cling on to the Christian faith yet more firmly. So I, I think maybe that's a way in which my approach has been a little bit different is, um, you know, rather than starting with like, this is why you're wrong, starting with this is why you're right and actually giving full voice. And I know this is something that, that Tim Keller talks about as well, kind of giving full voice to the argument against our position as Christians mm-hmm. um, to the point where I, I think as he has put it to the point where your non-Christian friend would say, yes, that's exactly what my problem is with Christianity. You've kind of put it more, strongly and fully than I would have done myself, but that that's exactly what I'm talking about here. And then from that point, to look at the reasons why 
I, I think that actually Christianity stands up extremely well. Yeah, it, it's interesting. You know, one of the things that has been enlightening to me, and I think Keller has pointed this out quite a bit, and you pointed out quite a bit. And of course, the historian, I believe his name is Tom. Tom Holland. Tom, Tom Holland, yeah. Whose book Not was Spider-Man, fast- the other Tom Holland. Yeah, there's two Tom Hollands. Uh, choose carefully. But um, Tom Holland, the historian, whose book is just really fascinating. One of the things he illuminates for, for us, and I think you have done in your work in, at, at, a level, at a very lay level, is to say even the ways that Christianity is criticized today, mm. fairly or unfairly. You know, so if, you, if you're saying Christians don't care enough for the poor, which I'm not sure that's true, but let's say that that's what you're criticizing Christians for. Actually, concern for the poor, just objectively, historically, is rooted in Christianity itself and its introduction yeah. to the into the modern yeah. world. I think it's interesting too, right? That um, a lot of the criticisms of Christianity are are rooted in a worldview that was formed by Christianity. Mm, mm, uh, can mm. you talk about the phenomena? Yeah, I, I, I do. And actually, that example that you gave is, is an interesting one, because the challenge Christians don't care enough about the poor. I actually agree. Um, I think it is very true that Christians don't care enough about the poor. If we truly listen to what Jesus says and what the, the scriptures call us to, we would care a whole lot more than we do. But what's the alternative? When we look at the, when we compare the extent to which Christians care about the poor in terms of, for example, their financial giving, we compare that to the giving of uh, secular folk you know, who could be peers in other respects. Actually, Christians give far more to the poor than um, you know, secular liberal folk who, who might um, see themselves as, as allied with the poor. So it, again, I think maybe that's, that's a place where um, the approach I'm taking to apologetics is a little, little uh, unusual or uh, atypical that I don't have a whole lot of interest in defending everything that Christians have ever done or, um, you know, what the majority of Christians today in any particular country you know, think or, or how they act. I think as Christians, we should be, we come into the Christian faith repentant. And I think that's something that we need to cultivate in our daily discipleship. And, and so to say, yes, Christians have actually failed to live up to Jesus' calling when it comes to caring for the poor. Christians have failed to live up to Jesus' calling when it comes to um, equality of people of different races. Christians have failed to live up to Jesus' calling when it comes to the treatment of women. I think all of these things are true, but the answer is not less Christianity is actually more. That's a great. That's a great word. I, I wonder too if you've thought about this. I'm sure you have. Your perspective coming from the UK to America helps you see kind of some of the things. I don't know with fresh eyes, perhaps, or in a way that maybe those of us who are embedded here in, in the in the American culture don't see in terms of how to talk to our neighbors about Christianity, how to how to think about these things. Yeah, it's been a really interesting experience. I, I moved here 13 years ago in the fall of 2008. Is that 13 years ago? I think so. Um, a, so my, my first introduction to America was uh, the election of Barack Obama and the sort of run up, run up to that and you know, many kind of controversies at that time. And one of the things that interests me is that I, I am technically an immigrant to this country, but that word is almost never used of me. Mm. And I, I have never been under suspicion from anyone as being you know, one of those immigrants coming over here and, and sort of messing things up. 
Um, I think there's, there's a, a strong narrative at the moment, especially among, among white evangelicals, of whom I consider myself one, that you know, immigration is eroding America's Christian heritage and identity, for example. The irony is that, that the kind of immigrants you don't want if you want to preserve America's Christian identity are, are white Europeans like me. We're actually some of the least likely to be bringing the gospel with us. If we care about um, furthering America's Christian identity, the kinds of immigrants we want are actually much more likely to come from Latin America or from parts of Africa. Um, in, in general, uh, poorer immigrants of color are bringing the gospel with them, whereas sort of privileged white Europeans like me are usually bringing a kind of hardened secularism with them. So I, I think that's just one of the areas where it, 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 it's um, curious to me, or I, I do feel like I have a sort of slightly different perspective on things coming from a, a place of, of sort of mm -hmm. cultural privilege, I guess, um, as I'm entering the US from the UK. That's a really good, that's that's really interesting, you know, that uh, the immigrant experience that I haven't thought of, that your immigrant experience is different than maybe others immigrants immigrant experience here. I want to talk about teen teens because you obviously saw fit to to write a version of confronting Christianity for teens. And I and I'm so glad that you did because you know I think even uh, I you know I grew up in a Christian home and great parents, you know, uh and I never as many do I didn't fall away and come back story. But I do remember reading when I was a teenager uh, Josh McDowell's book, Evidence Demands a Verdict. And I just remember thinking in my head, I just remember the moment when I was thinking in my head, you know, this stuff my parents believe, it's actually true. Mm. Like I yeah. wasn't in danger of leaving the faith, but it strengthened my faith in a way that said, okay, like my parents aren't just doing this because it feels good, because it makes their life better, which it did. Christianity does, it can uh, in some ways, right? Uh, but it's actually true. Uh, and just looking at the compelling evidences for the historicity of scripture and for the resurrection of Jesus. And I think in some ways what you're doing is obviously talking to people who are skeptical of Christianity, but also to Christians who are maybe um, just need the confidence that mm -hmm. the faith that was passed down from their parents. And I, I think about this in the context of our children, right? I have teens and we want to pass our faith down, but there has to be a sense in which they wrestle with, with it themselves, yeah, and as yeah. a parent, it can be just kind of um, frustrating because you want them to get it and you want to put them in environments where they can get it, but you can't do it for them, right? Mm -hmm. So just talk about that dynamic and why you felt you really needed to write to teens in this moment. Yeah, and, and the example that you gave there of your own experiences is, is interesting because I, I think it's probably true that um, at the time when, when you were a teenager and growing up, the environment you're growing up, the, the main challenge to Christianity was a question of whether it was true or not. They did, can you really believe in the resurrection? As a, a sort of 21st century person who's educated, who understands science, like, can you really believe in the resurrection? Or there might, you know, questions around science, questions around the, uh, the reliability of the Bible. I think those are all still important questions. But actually, our children today are growing up in a world where the, the main challenge that they'll experience to their Christian faith in, in school will actually be a moral challenge. So it's less, oh, well, Christians are stupid for believing what they believe, and more, Christians are actually immoral for, for holding the beliefs that they believe, especially when it comes to um, sexual ethics and, and um, our understanding of, of male and female. 
And so, it, and that is actually a very different kind of emotional experience uh, because you can feel a certain kind of uh, got at if you're um, bearing the brunt of people thinking that you're you're dumb and uneducated and, and foolish and naive, believing what you believe. This is, this is a different kind of emotional force if your friends are actually saying you're uh, hateful and bigoted and um, morally wrong for your beliefs. So I think part of what I was trying to do in, in the, the teen version as, as well as in the, the adult version was to look in particular at those sort of morally weighted questions and to stare in the face the fact that in, in our kind of cultural environment today, we, we're very much seen as the, the bad guys for holding to uh, Christian se sexual ethics, especially. Um, but again, to look at how actually what the, the Bible offers us is not a story of hate, but a story of love. And it, it's not a story that, that pushes people into loneliness, but actually a story that welcomes people into family. And, and that the the desire, the deep desire that all of us have, but I think that's frequently expressed by a sort of rising generation now, the desire for acceptance and, and um, intimacy is something which, if we are following the New Testament, should be abundantly on offer to everyone in the local church and that it shouldn't just be limited to people in sexual relationships. That's a, that's a really interesting point. And I think you're right. I, I mean, we tend to oversimplify our own era and oversimplify the one we're in. So I don't want to commit that error. Mm -hmm. However, it does seem when 80s and 90s, when I was, you know, formative years for me, as you said, the, the question wasn't, is Christian, the question what, what it seemed like, is Christianity true? Mm -hmm. um, too confining, right? Is it too constricting in terms of your sexual freedom and your liberty? Yeah. And as you said, today, it seems like the question is different. It's mm -hmm. basically, is Christianity dangerous? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. I'm nervous about this. Obviously, we, we trust in the Lord and we, we know the end of the story. But it's, it's a little jarring to live in society where that is the question. Is mm -hmm. Christianity dangerous? And even, even Christians asking that question, even yeah. our kids asking that question, uh, I feel like the pressure on teenagers today to conform to the sort of um, sexual revolution mm, mm. and jettison their faith for that is so strong right yeah. now uh, and, and pressuring them in ways that maybe I don't know that I, we felt when we were growing up. So what is your word to teens today who are Christian teens and, and others who are facing that? And I guess secondarily, what would be your word to parents and those who have mm. influence over teens? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that that feeling is real. And I think it's very tempting for us as parents or as grandparents to look at our culture today and think, you know, look back longingly for the good old days, I suppose, when uh, Christianity wasn't out of kilter with the prevailing cultural norms and when it was sort of felt safer to be a Christian and less, less was demanded in terms of discipleship uh, growing up as a Christian. But one of the things that's been striking to me, even in the last few years, as I've sort of thought more about uh, American history, and, and I very much see my own country as complicit in this, so don't don't hear this as a sort of critique from outside. I think there's blood absolutely on, on my own country's hands. 
But if we look back to, say, the 1960s as the time when everything started to go wrong, you know, the sexual revolution, uh, Christian marriage being challenged as, as normative, uh, leading to the um, famous Roe v. Wade uh, ruling that made abortion legal across all states, you know, flowing into the um, the gay rights movement, et cetera, is it easy for us to sort of look back to, to that as the time when everything started to go wrong. But actually, the 60s is also the time when Black Americans were starting to get any measure of, of justice. And, and if we scroll back sort of through history, you know, if we go pre the 60s, we're in the period of, of segregation and Jim Crow laws. And prior to that, we're in the period of slavery. So if we think about, okay, the, the Christian growing up today and compare him or her to the Christian growing up uh, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, let's say, or even, you know, even 70 or 80 years ago, what would discipleship demand of, of those sort of folks in the past? It would have demanded them to actually fight against segregation. Like actual Christian ethics would have demanded that they completely bucked the trend of everything that was going on around them and even broke the, the laws of the land in terms of how um, African-Americans were being treated. And so in some ways, I actually think that the discipleship challenge for kids today, if, they, if they're serious about reading the Bible and following Jesus, I think it's less it's in some respects. Um, now, that, that may, may change in the coming years, but I don't think it's novel that, that Christians are growing up in an environment where actually a lot of the prevailing culture is deeply anti-biblical. I think we've, I think we've always been there. It's just been in different forms. And, and I think uh, in terms of helping um, teenagers today to get their heads around this, I think one of the most powerful arguments um, that's, that's lodged is to say, you know, just as the, the white Christian segregationists of the 60s um, used the Bible to oppose mixed race marriage, so today, you know, you Christians are using your Bibles to um, oppose same-sex marriage. And that's a really powerful argument because none of us want to be aligned with the white Christian segregationists of the 60s. But actually, the problem with them wasn't that they were reading their Bible too much. It was that they weren't reading their Bible half enough. And, and, and the, the right response today, again, to, to a world which is sort of out of kilter with what the scriptures say, isn't to let go of Christian sexual ethics. It's actually to cling more tightly to, to both Christian sexual ethics and also to um, the ethics of the Bible that give us uh, an extraordinary call to love across racial, cultural, national difference. Uh, and not just a, as a sort of separate but equal idea, but actually as, as one body together. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting contrast and, and sort of countercultural. I also wonder too, Rebecca, if American Christians are not properly equipped or have not dealt with the reality that to live as a faithful Christian will put us at some point at odds with the prevailing culture. And really, it's been like that in every generation since since Jesus first told his disciples it'd be like that, right? Yeah. This idea that, you know, the apostles talked, said things like, you know, to be a friend of the world is to be enemy of God. Uh, now, obviously, you can be super, like, fundamentalist in this way where, you know, everything is seen as the world and you have to sort of go into a bunker. But on the other hand, I think the other opposite problem we have is I think we get, we're surprised that to be a Christian is to rub up against cultural norms and cultural mm -hmm. 
ideas and and and, and, and cultural re- religious ideas. Yeah. Um, and do you think that is part of the angst that a lot of young Christian teens are facing as they assess their faith? Yeah, and I think honestly, and I, and I feel this uh, this pull as a parent. There's a, a big piece of us that wants to protect our kids from anything hard and wants to make actually Christianity a really easy option for our children because we, we we desperately don't want them to turn away from Jesus. But the problem is, I don't think you can have Christianity as an easy option. If Jesus says anyone who wants to come after me must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me, that has to mean that there is a cost to discipleship. And so in some ways, I think we can see that the kind of pressure that our our kids will be under in in school and sort of their peer group environments today as an opportunity for that to be real to them now. And and not not in the sense, as you were alluding to a few minutes ago, not in the sense of sort of seeking out controversy or, you know, striving for martyrdom, um, sort of cultural or or literal. I, I don't think we are called to be as difficult as possible in the hope that those around us right. will, you know, say something that we can claim as, as persecution. Right. Um, quite the reverse, actually. I, I think we're, we're called to give a reason for the hope that we have, but to do so with gentleness and respect. Um, and so I, I want to raise my, my kids to approach everyone they, they encounter with that gentleness and respect which doesn't mean they won't give a reason for the hope that they have, but, but is actually just, it's how, how they're called to, to give that reason and, and to expect that they'll be out of kilter with their friends. Um, I mean, I see that even a few weeks ago, my, my elder daughter, who's 10, um, her health teacher walked the class through the, the gender unicorn tool that folks are using today to sort of explain that um, our, our, our biological sex and our gender identity aren't necessarily the same thing. And that, you know, somebody could, you don't just have to look at your body to know whether you're a boy or a girl, but actually you need to sort of look within yourself and, and at something that that's seen as more fundamental or more, um, you know, more true of us in terms of our, our gender identity than, than the bodies um, that we have. And my daughter in this class said to the teacher, you know, because I'm a Christian, I don't actually agree with this, but um I, I would never be unkind to somebody who identified as transgender or as, as, as non-binary. I was I was thankful that she'd said that because she had a she knew that it, it was right in that moment to say something, um, and b that she wasn't sort of going in with guns blazing, but was wanting to make clear that actually, or is this this wasn't what she believed as a Christian. If the goal was to have people not be bullied or, or um, spoken to unkindly or, or treated as less um, because they identify as transgender, then as a Christian, she was also very much called to that that goal uh, of showing love and kindness to people regardless of, of the, um, you know, the, how they identify. So I think that's that's going to be the, the two sort of two-pronged discipleship that we'll need to um, help our kids with is, is having the courage to speak but to do it with gentleness and respect. Yeah, which is basically what, that's basically First Peter, <laughs> right? It's precisely where, First Peter, yes. I, where for Peter says, and Peter, lest anyone think he was some shrinking violet, was Indeed. murdered for his faith upside down, as tradition says, right? And yeah. Yet Peter says, on the one hand, be firm, be strong. Mm. 
uh, have an answer for every person, answer the questions of the age, but that he says, do it with gentleness and kindness. And then he also yeah. has this whole thing where he, a couple of times where he says, make sure that you're being persecuted for, for actual, for, for the, the right gospel, right, for the gospel right. not just because you're being a jerk. That's my translation, yeah. my, yes, uh, my loose translation, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so I think you're right about that. It does seem, Rebecca, that there's two ways to, to get this wrong, right? Where we think if we're just winsome enough and nice enough, then Christianity won't be seen as a threat and everybody will like us. And even if we have beliefs that run counter to cultural norms, or there's the other um, opposite way where it's like, we always have to, you know, everything's persecution and we're always Mm -hmm. trying. And like we, we dismiss gentleness as being weak and a squish and all that. So how do we do this well? And how do we have you know, how do we hold civility and courage together this way? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it walks off the pages of scripture to us, honestly. I, I don't think it's anything new as, as we were just discussing from, from First Peter. I think uh, in particular, it's very easy for us, and I find this myself, it's very easy for us in conversation with a, a non-believing friend or someone who's treating us as sort of in a hostile way to think that we're defending the gospel when in fact we're defending ourselves. And I find it so interesting the way that Paul writes. Um, it's, it's striking to me, especially when he's writing about uh, sexuality and uh, pretty much every time that Paul, for example, names um, same-sex sexual activity as, as sinful. Very close to that exact text, he will then um, cut down self-righteousness when a few verses after um, naming same-sex sexual um, activities. As, as sinful, right alongside man-stealing, interestingly, enslaving, as those two uh, um, sins are, are held right next to each other in, in First Timothy. Paul then says, uh, this is a trustworthy saving, saying, worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to all to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. So he, he's not looking down on other people from a position of, of self-righteousness. He's actually the first to say he's like the worst sinner he knows. And I, I think one of the ways in which we can relieve that pressure is to, to be willing to say and, and quick to acknowledge our own sin, the sin of our tribes of, of, of various kinds, at the same time as holding up the beauty of the gospel. And, and I don't think that's an, I don't think the first like diminishes the, 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 the second. It actually elevates it. So you know, even as I think about how how I'm discipling my my own children. It's easy as a parent to think, well, what my what my kids most need to see in me is the sort of perfect parent who never gets anything wrong. Actually, I think my kids need to see that I'm a sinner saved by grace. They need to see me apologize when I treat them meanly because of my sinful heart. Uh, and and that is going to be that's going to commend the gospel to them more than me trying to act like I'm I'm a, a sort of sinless superhero and I, I think that that applies how we relate to our children and I think it also applies to how we relate to friends yeah there can also be I, I've seen this a cynicism set in in our generation that we have to fight against and I, I'm curious your thoughts on that where we think we see the corruption in some Christian communities we see all the bad headlines 
we see the secularism or what we think is secularism, or we, we, we see all this stuff that's really distressing. And you almost can get to a place where you feel like maybe God isn't even at work in this age and all the, all the revival and all the uh, work of the spirit to move people to, to trust Jesus. Well, that happened back then with, you know, Billy Graham, that's not happening right now. And I think sometimes can we not miss what God is doing in our midst, even among people who are skeptical, even among a generation that seems to be falling away that. God, God might actually be working in the people you're writing books to, right? Like the, the teens yeah. who are questioning their faith. So tell us how to, to avoid that cynicism. Yeah, I, a few ways. I think one is to just widen our lens and to look at the global church and the reality that Christianity is and for foreseeable future will continue to be the largest and most diverse belief system in the world, like by, by a long chalk. Uh, we can look at places like China, where the, the church is growing so fast that there'll be more Christians in China than in America by 2030. And some experts even think China could be a majority Christian country by 2060. And we can look at the extraordinary growth of, of the gospel in parts of Latin America, parts of Africa. Um, I, I think that that wide lens will help and encourage us. I think when it comes to our, our own generation and our own sort of particular culture, I do think it's helpful to recognize that. Um, we live in a world today where it is harder to identify as a Christian and say fewer people will do so just because it's easy when it's not actually real. Um, my husband moved from, he did his undergrad at Oklahoma State, uh, grew up in Oklahoma and then moved to Cambridge, UK to do his PhD. And so he went from a place where, as, as he would describe it to me, where um, even if people didn't go to church, they sort of respected the fact that he did. And he was generally, it was generally seen as a positive thing to be a Christian. Um, and he had a lot of friends who went to church, but it was kind of like the cool thing to do. So it's sort of hard, really hard to know whether they mm-hmm. were there because that was what the, the cool social thing to do was. And he moved to Cambridge, in the UK, where being a Christian was like completely weird. Mm. Uh, and we, he'd show up to church on a Sunday and look around and think, there's nobody here today because it seemed like the cool thing to do. <laughs> Actually, everybody is paying some sort of social cost for being here. And that he, in some ways, he found that actually more encouraging. Um, again, I, I think it's easy for us to confuse sort of large numbers of people who would check the census box, you know, Christian, um, he, may, he may not have been believers at all with uh, you know that that proportion declining with a, a decline in, in authentic faith um and i think we also need to recognize it it, it can feel like well uh, secularism is just growing and growing and christianity is just shrinking and shrinking and actually a lot of studies have shown it, it it's quite hard to carry non-belief over multiple generations um it, there was a, a, a study done by the the pew forum folks a, a few years ago where they were looking at um, people who were raised in America as, as Catholic, people who were raised as Protestant, and people who were raised as non-religious. And what they found was that folks who were raised Catholic, 60% of them still identified as Catholic. The same was true for folks raised non- non-religious. 60% still identified as non-religious, and 40% no longer identified as non-religious. And f- but for folks raised Protestant, actually 80% still identified as, as Protestant in adulthood. So if I if I apply that, if the same plays out in this next generation, um, it is substantially more likely 
that my non-Christian neighbors who are raising their kids um, non-religious, that their kids will grow up to become Christians, that's more likely than that my kids will grow up to become non-religious. So again, we have the, you know, we think of the right, the rise of the nuns and people who identify as non-religious. It's That's actually fascinating. a unstable category. It doesn't, it, it's quite hard for people to have it last sort of throughout their lives and even harder for it to pass down multiple generations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. I know we've, we've gone long and I haven't even talked about your book, The Secular Creed. By the way, I want to really encourage everybody who's listening right now to get both of Rebecca's books on apologetics. Uh, the first one, uh, which really helps us think through just questions about Christianity. And I, I hand it out um, almost all the time. For a long time, I was giving people like a reason for God. And I still highly recommend that because I love Keller's work. But this confronting Christianity, 12 hard questions for the world's largest religion. Man, if you have someone in your life that is just struggling or seeking, absolutely give this to them. It's just awesome. And then uh, for teens, 10 questions every teen should ask and answer about Christianity. I would get this for your teen. I would buy it in bulk for your youth group and hand it out. And I'm not just saying that because uh, we're friends. I just really feel like it's that good. So we'll have links in the show notes. But I do want to talk. I know we're a little bit over time, but I want to talk about your book that you published at the Gospel Coalition called The Secular Creed. And I thought this was really important just because, um, and I and I think, you know, obviously it's in response to kind of the, the rise in sort of people being out front with what they say they believe, you know, you see signs in, in people's yards. I, this house believes in science and blah, blah, blah. Um, so, which makes me want to actually put up a sign that said, you know, with like the Apostles Creed or something, um, <laughs> you know, in my front yard. Are you surprised? It doesn't seem like we're very secular. It seems like we're very religious, even, you know, that's one thing I heard Keller say being in New York. He said, everyone talks about relativism but it's really not true people have absolute beliefs and they're actually not that secular they just have you know there's a religious activity going on here is is that kind of what you're saying with with this phenomenon yeah and as you mentioned that the prompt for me writing the secular creed was those yard signs which at least in my neighborhood usually begin and in this house we believe that black lives matter love is love women's rights are human rights and then there are usually two or three other claims that could be you know uh, diversity is, um, well, no human is illegal, um, kindness is everything, diversity makes us stronger, that's what I was trying to think of, or science is real. There, there are a few ones that, depending on the yard sign, uh, get thrown in there. And it, it seems to me that a, a lot of folk today, um, you know, a lot of Christians today, look at those yard signs and think this is kind of a package deal, and either I'm in with everything on that sign or I'm out. And so for, for some Christians, they'll look at that, they'll, they'll recognize, you know, in the, in the Black Lives Matter claim, they'll recognize the, the history of, of racial justice um, that, that all too often Christians have been complicit in. And they'll think, okay, what I need to do is, is at least, you know, um, mentally, even if I literally take that sign and hammer it into my own yard, I've been told that, that affirming um, racial justice and equality is intrinsically tied to affirming gay and lesbian and transgender identities. And so I'll buy it all. Uh, And there's another approach I think Christians are taking of of looking at both signs and thinking, well, I know that there are some things here that the Bible says aren't right for Christians. And so I'm just going to kind of knock knock them all down. (laughs) Uh, Again, you know, maybe maybe metaphorically rather than than literally. And I think actually we need to do something much more careful than that. I think we need need to look at those signs and, and carefully sort through 
the, the, the truths on those signs that Christians not only affirm, but actually that Christianity is the basis for, for example, universal human equality, um, racial equality, equality of men and women, uh, it, it, the, the, the reality that those who have been historically um, oppressed should be protected and not trampled on. Like all of these are Christian ideas. Without Christianity, they actually don't have any basis. And, and historically, that's it, it's because of Christianity they've come to us. But at the same time, to sort through those those signs and to say, okay, where is the Bible calling me to um, to strongly not affirm some of these claims? You know, maybe it's in women's rights or human rights, which is coded language for uh, abortion rights, um, and, and to recognise, for example, that you know, yes, if there is no God, then the unborn baby is just a collection of cells. But if there is no God, that's all that you and I are too. So I, I think my hope with that book is to, to give people a resource to, to help them think through it in a pretty concise way. It's actually a lot shorter than Confronting Christianity. It's similar length to the, the team's book. Um, I've designed quite accessible and, and a quick read, but hopefully to help people see yeah. the Bible pulls us in very different directions on a number of these claims. Yeah, and it does seem that, uh, you know, I think a lot of evangelism strategies assume that people are nervous about talking about re- what they believe in religion and we sort of need to kind of tamp that down in terms of mm. and uh it does seem that that whatever era that worked in that era is almost over with that mm. instead it seems like we're in an era where people are actually out front with their beliefs and they may not call them a religion but they they function like religions uh, yeah. is that is that do you think that's a um you know a, a, a call for christians to winsomely obviously and courageously but be unafraid to say, no, this is where I believe and this is why. Yeah, I think it's, a, in many ways, it's an opportunity to build on common ground. And I, I love, um, Tim Keller has a, a useful metaphor for this, I think, where he says that if, in conversation with a non-Christian, there'll be some things that that you, you both agree, actually, and, and other things on which you really don't. And so you kind of need to build a raft of the, the things on which you profoundly agree, on which to float the ideas that you want to introduce that they may not agree with at all. Um, and that if you don't build that raft, you're just sort of lobbing in ideas they're not going to agree with at all, that's it, just going to sink. But if, if you build that raft of, of common ground, that you, you may have an opportunity to, to send some of those beliefs sort of across the, across the water for them to consider. And I think that's a, I think that's a helpful uh, approach um, as we think about just how to engage with, with our um, non-believing neighbours or friends and I think we need to recognize human beings are fundamentally tribal. And it, it's very hard for any of us to consider beliefs that would put us at odds with our own tribe, however that's conceived. Um, and, I, and I think we need to, to examine our, our own tribal thinking um, and, and recognize, you know, where is it hard for us to repent? Um, what, what are the issues where we're more willing to cling on to our tribe than we are to actually look at what the Bible challenges us with? And, and in that space to then be able to, to speak truth to our, our non-Christian friends, where we're asking them to turn away from their tribe and to, in order to follow Jesus. That is really good. Well, folks, uh, I want to encourage you who are listening to get Rebecca's books, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion, uh, her book for teens, 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity, and her wonderful little book, The Secular Creed, published with the Gospel Coalition. Uh, Rebecca, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for your 
your faithful ministry that is so helpful to all of us in the church. And I just want to encourage you to, to keep doing what you're doing. Thanks for having me, Dan. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Way Home Podcast with Daniel Darling. For more information, you can visit danieldarling.com. If you do like this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. We also encourage you to rate and review so others can know about the podcast. You can follow me at, at @dandarling on Twitter or go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash danielmdarling. I also want to encourage you again to check out my latest book, Away With Words, and you can visit awaywithwordsbook.com. Thank you for listening again to The Way Home Podcast. This is a production of the National Religious Broadcasters.